The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Well, it's great to be with you and to have the opportunity uh, to share with you this afternoon. I trust that you've had a good lunch and that none of you will be dozing through this session. I did say to Charles uh, when we were organizing the program that he'd given me the graveyard slot. Uh, when everybody's stomachs are full, the eyes tend to, uh, eyelids tend to feel much heavier. But uh, I trust that uh, you've uh, been filled with your lunch and your uh, coffee and tea and so on and are ready for this session. You probably noticed that uh, two of the plenary sessions have had a significant focus upon the theme of apologetics. And I am a, a Christian apologist, an evangelist, that is, with a focus on giving a justification of the Christian view of life. Many, many Christians, in fact, do not really know uh, what apologetics actually is. And so it does help to start with something of a definition. To give a reason for our hope is a biblically derived mandate. And it means that we are prepared in our sphere of influence to give not just an explanation or a proclamation of the message, but a justification of it. It's one thing to have an opinion, to have a view, but of course opinions are cheap. We live in a culture that's full of a whole variety of different opinions, but an opinion isn't an argument. Now, of course, the justification of our faith takes a number of different uh, uh, shapes. We've seen some of them on the uh, video there. We justify our faith in word and in deed, but I want to talk specifically in this session this afternoon about how we can begin to justify or explain the Christian view of life in a way that will make sense to those in our sphere of influence. Apologetics is often seen as something that is <clears throat> concerned, of course, with reason, giving a reason for our hope, and is therefore assumed by some to be rationalistic. That is, that apologists are essentially intellectual elitists, who spend most of their time in ivory towers reading books. Uh, and if you've got a PhD in analytical philosophy, you might be able to understand them. But apart from that, they're basically irrelevant to the church. For a very, very tiny portion of people, apologetics is relevant. Those in the academy, perhaps, or those at a certain tier of education. And that's not only that, but the approach to sharing our faith is essentially a rationalistic one. Now, apologetics is rational. When we give a reason, we are giving people a rationale for believing in Christianity, for trusting Christ. But we are not being rationalistic in our approach. To be rationalistic is to assume that the human mind is the very starting point for all of our knowledge. In other words, if it can't be justified by my... Um, uh, self-governing principles of reason and logic, it can't possibly be true. Some of you may or may not have heard of a very famous philosopher who perhaps began uh, what we now call modern philosophy, and his name was Descartes. And he said this, he said, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. In other words, he said, I'm going to start my knowing of myself and God and the world with myself, not with revelation. Now, we are not rationalists. We do not begin ultimately with ourselves. But we begin with the revelation of God. That's why we have this. <clears throat> the Bible. Apologetics does not mean working outside of the Scripture, but building our explanation and our defense of the Christian faith on and in the Scriptures. There's a lot of misunderstanding, consequently, about apologetics. And I suspect that many of you, after hearing the broad, brilliant uh, last night, if you heard Ravi, the broad brushstrokes of the nature of the situation in our culture and the apologetic task, what I'm hoping to do in this session is put perhaps some more practical legs on what was said uh, last night. A lot of confusion surrounds this task, and it is seen, unfortunately, as even distinct from evangelism. And so one of my purposes is being, in, in being present with you this afternoon is to show that giving a reason or doing apologetics is synonymous with evangelism. That they can't be artificially separated. Nowhere in the New Testament 
to the best of my knowledge, do you read about ordinary, average people being called to do evangelism, and then an elite team in the church, perhaps tipped out of the Areopagus in Athens or the schools of Gamaliel, Gamaliel, the Jewish teacher, the rabbinical schools, the experts, and then there's a group that is sent off to do apologetics by the apostle, and then a group that's sent off to do evangelism. They are involved in each other. That is, when we proclaim the gospel, we defend it, and when we defend the gospel, we proclaim it. And so what I hope to do is encourage you to see this afternoon that this is part of your task as well as mine, that it's the task of the church, the people of God. And I am utterly convinced, and the reason uh, that apologetics has featured so much in this conference thus far, is I am totally convinced that if we are serious about reaching this generation for Christ, we have to take this task seriously. Because the vast majority of uh, university students on the campuses around Canada today really don't believe there's anything much in it at all. Given that there is no knowable objective truth and no real meaning in history and so on and so forth, according to the modern thinkers, what is there in Christianity? You do Christianity, I do the gym. I uh, do crystals and feng shui and you go to church. We're the same. That is one of the attitudes that pervades in our culture today. Unless we are prepared, I am convinced, to grapple with this, we can ignite as much light as we like, but we have to be prepared to give an explanation and a defense of our message. Why is it that when we send our children off to university today, the age of 18, you know, that's where the church is emptying, right there. They grow up in the churches... Very often, they're not equipped with the Christian worldview and an ability to defend their faith or understand how their faith can stand up in higher education situations, and they exit the church at that point and never return. Huge, a huge percentage. Statistically, the vast majority of young people under the age of 20 today have never set foot in a church. So if we want to take this task seriously, I'm convinced that this is important, but it's it's not always seen that way. Recently, even, even just of late, I was at a university giving a seminar in apologetics. And a group of Christian students there, I was told, did not want to participate in the seminar because they'd read a recent popular book on the, the subject of Christianity. And it was seen that the apologetics, in their view, was now irrelevant. People weren't interested in arguments, so on and so forth, or giving a reason. I think that's a, a sad state of affairs and it's not the way we're going to win back a, a, a generation. So I hope there is something of an outline there as to why I think this is so important. Now let's root ourselves in Scripture. If you have a Bible, you can have it to hand. In Jude, the letter of Jude, verse 3. Jude, as one in the example in the New Testament, gives us one of the reasons why we must engage in apologetics. In fact, he gives us a command. He says, contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, something is obviously being presupposed here. First of all, there is something to contend for. Contend earnestly for the faith. What is the faith? I wish that were as clear in the mind of the Western church today as it used to be. Some of us aren't exactly sure what faith it is we are contending for. And we have to be very, very clear in our minds, first and foremost, if we are going to give a reason for the hope that we have, that we understand the hope and the faith that we have. What is it? Well, Scripture tells us that that faith is the faith that is built upon Christ and the teaching of the apostles. Christ is the cornerstone, and the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So the faith that we are to contend for is biblical faith. That's the faith we are to contend for. Not a faith that has had foreign, philosophical, historical, scientific ideas imposed upon it that becomes practically indefensible, but a biblical faith. That means Genesis through Revelation without throwing away large chunks along the way. Don't forget, if you take out or take a slice of any portion of the Word of God out, 
You have to ask yourself on what criteria you're doing so. At what point does God start telling the truth in here? Genesis 12? I was asked that by an Oxford student. It is the biblical faith that we are called to defend, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That's the challenge to us. In the contemporary church in, in Canada today, one of the reasons I believe that, yeah, as well as in Western Europe, in Britain, the situation is still the same. One of the reasons we are struggling to be effective is that so many of us have sacrificed the teaching of the apostles and prophets, the apostles' doctrine, our confidence in the infallible word of God. If you and I do not root ourselves in God's word, in our giving a reason, in our giving a defense in the world today, then on what criteria do we decide which portion is God's word and which isn't? Well, we do so on the basis of our own opinion and our own minds, and we have made then the mind of man and the word of man greater and more important than the mind and the word of God. And on such a basis, Christianity is indefensible. I'm not prepared to surrender a single chapter of God's word on any university campus. If I do so, it's totally self-destructive. So we are to, con- to contend, we're commissioned to contend for the faith. That's all of us. I don't see it prefaced by anybody with a degree, a postgraduate degree, or preferably a doctorate is called to contend for the faith. This is the church. Turn with me to 1 Peter 3, verse 15, where we're encouraged again by a fisherman to give a reason. Ravi uh, read from this last night, if you were here. 1 Peter 3, verse 15 says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, or set him apart as Lord, and always be ready to give a defense. That word there, defense, is is the Greek word apologia, or apologia. That's from from where we derive the term apologetics. Be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, or with gentleness and with respect. Now, this is a fisherman who, by, conf- by the uh, historical uh, confession of the New Testament, is uneducated and unschooled. And he is telling and commissioning, commanding us as the people of God, the church, to give an apologia, to give a defense of our faith. And he outlines some prerequisites here. First of all, he says, set Christ apart, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. In the very center of your being must be, if you are to give a reason, the Lordship of Christ. Now, many of us as Christians believe that the Lordship of Christ is to extend over our moral lives, our ethical lives, as though the summation of Christianity is purely in our ethical activity. But Jesus' uh, uh, statement about the first and greatest commandment is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. We are called to love God with our minds, and the Lordship of Christ must extend to our minds, to the intellectual arena. Many of us are not so comfortable with that. Oh, we were trained in physics, or we did chemistry, or we've done philosophy, or we've, we've done uh, history of literature, we've done higher criticism, so on and so forth. Or we've got some kind of background, and here we're not so sure about the Lordship of Christ. It's a challenge to us, first and foremost, as a church. If we want, Peter says, to give a defense, we have to have this clear, Christ is Lord. If Christ is indeed the Word, the creator, sustainer, and providential governor of this world, then he indeed is Lord of all. And every fact in this world is a theistic fact because it's created and controlled by the Lord Jesus himself. So Peter tells us, set Christ apart as Lord, and always be ready. When Christ is Lord in our lives, then we must be ready to give a defense. Now, this is the tough part. When I uh, came to Canada some 18 months ago, I wanted to get into the community as best as I could and get to know some of my neighbors and get to know people living in the area settle into the community, understand the community, and also with the intention of sharing my faith in the community. So I joined the local soccer league. 
And I hadn't played, uh, I am a soccer player, but I thought, well, really, I can teach these Canadians a few lessons about soccer. So in joining, <clears throat> in joining this league, uh, it had been some five, six years since I'd played a competitive game of soccer in a, in a West London league in the United Kingdom. But uh, as I sort of uh, registered for the team and uh, came out on the first night and uh, we were warming up before the game, I ran out as though I was still 21. <laughs> and I was jigging around as though I was still 21, forgetting the fact that from about the age of 25 through to just over uh, 30 now, I had basically been studying, uh, writing, speaking, the life of the scholar, sitting in cars, sitting on aeroplanes... And even though I am built like a sparrow, that doesn't mean the heart is necessarily in good condition. <laughs> so I got out onto the soccer field, and now I was warming, and I took my first corner, and I strained my quad in this, immediately in my left leg. I thought, that didn't used to happen. <laughs> and as you know, when you pass a certain age, everything just starts to tighten up, and the body doesn't retain the elasticity that it used to have. And... Uh, so I was struggling, and uh, it took me some time, about five or six matches, before I gained match fitness again, so that at the end of the match, I wasn't crawling off the field and then crawling out of bed. You know how it is when you start exercising after doing none, and for the next few days, you're, it was like that. And so many hot baths, tablets, and uh, exercise later, I became match fit. Now, Peter is saying something similar here. He is saying, be ready, get yourself ready, get yourself fit, is what he is saying, for the apologetic task. It takes some work, and it may take a little bit of pain. Because we do have to do a little bit of work, a little bit of preparation, at least in the Scriptures. He says, so, be ready, get yourself ready. And then offer that defense to everyone who asks you a reason. Now, Peter, again, is presupposing here that when you are sharing your faith, you are going to give a reason because it is reasonable. The Christian faith is not something that comes to us by osmosis, bypassing the mind. Paul says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And so, as we share our faith, Peter is assuming that we are not talking about superstitious belief. Many people assume, of course, in the world that Christianity is akin to believing in Santa Claus, fairies, uh, don't walk under that ladder, it's bad luck. If a black cat wanders out in front of you, be careful for the rest of the day. Peter's saying, no, this isn't a superstition. There is a reason behind what we believe, and it can be reasoned through. It is rational. It's reasonable. And also, he very clearly implies... That people, if we are living this kind of a life, people are going to ask us. They will ask you a reason. Many of our perceptions of evangelism are back in my theological seminary days. I never forget how some students, before we went out on evangelism, were literally throwing up in the bathroom with nerves because it was cold start evangelism. You know, street preaching and uh, uh, painting in the streets and accosting people with leaflets and uh, knocking on people's doors in sort of areas that looked like uh, they were run by drug barons. That's pretty scary evangelism. Now, there's a place for all of that, for the bold and the courageous and those who are gifted at it, preferably. But <clears throat> Peter says here that people are going to ask you, they are going to come to you and ask you to give a reason if you are living with the Lordship of Christ in such a way. That if we're living holy lives set apart, thought, word and deed, that Christ is governing our lives, people will ask us a reason. That's been the case for me uh, on numerous occasions. In 2 Corinthians 5, one more passage I will take you to. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul helps us with another reason a sobering reason for giving an apologetic. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9 to 11, he says this. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear, he says, verse 10 of 2 Corinthians 5, before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad, Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we 
persuade men. Or knowing therefore the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Why? Because of the judgment seat of Christ. That it's a reality. And knowing therefore the fear of the Lord, we will persuade others. So we see how this is a thoroughly biblically derived mandate. Flipping over a few more pages, Paul helps us understand then the nature of our situation as believers as we are out in the world seeking to be salt and light. He helps us understand the nature of the apologetic situation. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 to 5, he says this, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. What are those strongholds? Verse 5 tells us, Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. I used to always apply that verse as a younger Christian in terms of discipleship. That taking every thought captive was simply about me disciplining my thoughts to be like Christ. Paul helps us here to see there's a much broader application in mind here. That we face strongholds out in the world, and those strongholds are arguments and pretensions and false knowledge that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And Paul says our task is to, our task is to cast down those pretensions, those arguments, and lead the thoughts of people in the obedience of Christ. That is the task. But we don't do it, and we don't wage this war in the flesh or in confidence in human ingenuity, but of course in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. And then the starting point then for apologetics. Where do we start? Well, it's a reiteration really of 1 Peter 3.15, but this was drummed into me as a small boy by my father. Proverbs 1, verse 7. Sorry, verse 3. He didn't drum it in that well, did he? Proverbs 1, verse 3. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The Greek word, of course, for wisdom, sophia, from which we get the term philosophy, philo meaning love, sophia meaning wisdom, the love of wisdom. If you love wisdom, the fear of the Lord is the very beginning of wisdom. That's how we start. In that context then, with that as our backdrop, what is our cultural moment as you and I engage with people in our sphere of influence in this society? Ravi talked a lot about it on uh, Friday evening, so I just want to give you a biblical parallel, a biblical example of the shift that I believe has taken place in our culture over the past 50 years particularly, perhaps over the last 100. In Acts chapter 2, the apostle Peter stands up and brings a remarkable proclamation. And for those of you who know your Bibles a little bit, you will know the audience that Peter addressed in Acts chapter 2 were Jewish proselytes from all over the known world. In fact, from under heaven, they were all God-fearers. The Bible says they were devout men and women. Gathered in Jerusalem, who heard Peter on that day. They were gathered for worship in Jerusalem. Everybody that Peter addressed on that day, we can presume, I think, from Scripture was a worshipper of the God of the Hebrews. They believed in the God of creation. They believed in the absolute God of Scripture, the God who had a plan for history. They believed in the providence of God in history. They believed in their father Abraham, through whom a seed was coming, who would be a redeemer. They believed that. They believed that this God was also a moral lawgiver and that he'd given his law to Moses. And so when Peter gets up on Acts chapter 2, the Christian worldview, that is the Christian perspective upon reality, was so established in the minds of his hearers that he did not need to take several steps back to address the very foundational issues. Who is God? What is our origin? What is the meaning of life? And so on. He could assume that in his crowd. All Peter had to do was to show that Jesus was the descendant of David, which he does admirably, that he is in fact the Messiah that they are expecting, and that they put him to death, but now they must repent and come to faith. All those things that Peter said had meaning. 
They understood his proclamation because they had the Christian worldview perspective in place so that Peter's words made sense, could be understood, and of course Peter refers himself back consistently into the Old Testament, direct quotations from Scripture in order to justify that Christ is the Messiah. Now how many of you would start an explanation of the gospel with your friends by talking about the Messiah who was promised? Or talk about the kingdom of God and the throne of David? The Christian worldview is not present. Now, I know there's a very mixed demographic here. I can see some white heads and some uh, darker heads and some wrinkly skin and some uh, less wrinkly skin. And so I know we represent different generations here. But my grandparents' generation found themselves largely as children in church and with a broadly Christian education. The structure of their education here in Canada and in the United Kingdom was broadly Christian. And they found themselves in church and in Sunday school to such a degree that the Christian worldview existed as a backdrop for them. When Peter got up in Acts 2, 3,000 are converted in one day. The message was completely comprehensible and utterly convincing and compelling because they already accepted a large proportion of it. But then if you flip over a few chapters in Acts to Acts chapter 17, you find the Apostle Paul in a very, very different situation, in Athens. And there he is speaking not to biblically literate people, but to biblically illiterate people who do not share the Christian worldview. And he is talking about Jesus and the resurrection in the marketplace. And do you know what they say about Paul? Or do you know what the question they ask? What is this idle babbler talking about? He seems to be a proclaimer of strange divinities. You ever had that reaction? What is this person waffling on about? What are they talking about? He was talking to, of course, uh, biblically illiterate Greeks who had a pagan culture, a Greek system of philosophy, which I shan't go into, and uh, it was essentially evolutionary, pagan, divided into a form-matter scheme, and these Greeks thought the idea of a God becoming flesh and then being raised from life by God A material man was utterly absurd. Their worldview did not permit it. And they also had no grounding in the Old Testament. Now I believe what has taken place over these past hundred years, and accelerated in these last fifty, has been a shift from an Acts 2 context in our environment to an Acts 17 context. Paul, after being told he was an idle babbler, is invited to the Areopagus, the highest intellectual court of the land at the time, and asked to give a presentation of his message so that they can understand it. And he gets three reactions. 3,000 are not converted in one day, but some scoff. Some say, we'll hear you again about this. This is very interesting. And some believed. That's the kind of reaction we get on university campuses and with people, uh, younger people today particularly. But I think it holds true across many of the generations. That seems to be the cultural moment that we're living in, and so it necessitates us engaging in giving a hope. Uh, when uh, Last year, when the blackouts happened, I'd only recently arrived in Canada, and uh, in fact, we didn't even have any furniture in our house. Uh, in fact, the only thing we could cook on was the barbecue outside, and then all the power went, and so we really were stuck. And Charles and Hillary were away on a holiday somewhere, so we couldn't go around and impose upon their hospitality. So some neighbours of ours invited us across the road for a meal. They were in their mid-thirties, professional, educated people, obviously quite wealthy, moved from Toronto out to this town just outside of the city. And we began to talk, and of course, uh, with a job like mine, uh, when you're asked your vocation, you are expecting one of two reactions, uh, a total change of subject, (laughs) or being pointed to the door, or something like that, or... uh, a great interest and engagement. And on this occasion, it was a conversation starter. The first question they asked me was, what is the difference between Christianity and Judaism? These are Canadians in their late 30s, educated, professional people. What is the difference between Christianity and Judaism? I was in Winnipeg uh, earlier this, uh, this month. It was cold. 
and uh, I was doing some hot tub evangelism. Um, <clears throat> I was actually uh, speaking in Winnipeg, but I'd got back to my hotel. I was shattered and, and really needed to unwind and rest. And I thought, well, let's, I'll go to the leisure facilities with my colleague. And so we headed there, and I thought, oh, no, there's somebody in the tub. And, you know, sometimes you just don't want to speak to any more strangers. And so I, I thought, oh, well, we, yeah, we're here now. So we got into the tub, and we started talking to this man, young, fairly young man, maybe mid-30s, and he was a vet. And so, of course, he said, what do you do? I said, well... <laughs> and uh, so we began to converse, and he said, that's interesting. He says, I'm, I'm a sham Christian. I said, what do you mean you're a sham Christian? He said, well, I got baptized and I got my kids done just in case, but I mean, I don't really practice. <laughs> I don't really know what it means. He said, I, I, uh, this, is, this is a man with, who's done eight years, probably, of veterinary medicine. I don't know what, I've been to a couple of church services, I couldn't understand what was going on. I spent the next hour and a half going wrinkly like a wrinkled fry... <laughs> in the hot tub, explaining to this man what Christianity was in Canada. And so our cultural moment has changed. Now, I, want, I need to introduce you, that's my introduction, to... Uh, <clears throat> I want to introduce you to the, to the main and most important concept in apologetics. And it's, get this one in your notes if, if you're not familiar with it, a worldview. Worldview. A worldview is a system of thought, or another big word for it, and apologists, as you know, are very good at making the gospel complicated, so let me help with that. A paradigm. It's a paradigm, a system of thought, and it's made up of a network of interrelated beliefs, which, if you want the technical term, we call presuppositions. Everybody that you will meet has a worldview, they nurture a worldview. They believe something about reality, and beliefs are not held in isolation from one another. They are interrelated. They are connected with each other. And the connection of those beliefs, those assumptions, is called a worldview. Now, without exception, everybody has one, although most people's is ill-conceived, inconsistent, and often totally unexamined. Now, part of the task of apologetics, if not the primary task, is to get people to examine what they believe and why. And Jesus did this all of the time because he asked questions, never because he was looking for information. He asked over a hundred questions in the New Testament of people in order to draw them out about their, their assumptions about life and reality. And he never, he rarely, in fact, answered people in exactly the same way. How many of you would answer an inquirer in this fashion? Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Imagine somebody came to you at work on Monday and said that to you. Oh, you're a good teacher. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And I strongly suspect you would say something like this. Well, let's sit down and let me just go through the ABC. Accept, believe, commit. Uh, here's a bridge and Jesus comes from one side to the other and so on and so forth. Jesus said, in this instance, what does the law say? How do you read it? Man says, well, uh, you know, love God, love your neighbor, so on and so forth. Jesus says, do this and you will live. What kind of an evangelistic message is that? <laughs> do this and you will live. But he was making the man face his assumptions and he was making him face the reality that if salvation was based on moral obedience, and most people think that if there is to be a salvation, it must be upon human originating goodness. In pointing him to the law, the man was shown his own inadequacy, like, just like the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and asked a similar question. And Jesus had compassion on him, the Bible says, and he says, yeah, but there's one thing you're lacking. Go sell everything you've got, give it to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. The man went away sad. He had much wealth because he was an idolater. If you want to find out what a person's worldview is, ask them some questions. Get them to open up about their assumptions. A few uh, illustrations might help at this point to illustrate what a worldview is. It functions a bit like a pair of glasses, a pair of spectacles, lenses. Lenses through which people look at the world. Not everybody has the same set of lenses on as you. 
You look at the world, if you're a Christian, or should do, and if you're being consistent, you will do, although many of us aren't consistent as Christians, we look through this lens. We interpret reality in all facts in accordance with the Scripture. That's how we understand reality. And our beliefs are all interconnected. Everybody else's beliefs are interconnected. And so when people look at the world, your friends, my friends, your work colleagues and mine, don't assume that they are wearing the same set of spectacles to understand the world as you. I don't know whether you tormented spiders as a child, but if you um, take a spider's web and pull on a spider's web, a worldview is a bit like a web as well. It can be conceptualized in that way. And a web is made up of different strands, as you know, that are all interrelated to one another. Beliefs, then, in a worldview are interrelated in a similar way. Now, if you pull on the edge of a spider's web and keep going, trust me, it'll all all unravel. The nearer you start to the centre of the web, the more damage you do. Why is it that you can think you're talking about a completely innocuous subject, totally unrelated directly to that person, and then they start getting very upset and angry about it? And you can't understand why they're being so angry and irritable. Well, the reason is you're pulling on one of their beliefs, yes, but they are connected to a whole load of other beliefs about reality, and if you damage one, you will damage them all. That's a worldview. Another way of looking at it is a bit like what we can call the context principle. Everybody here came to this session today, I'm grateful for this fact, in their clothes. (laughs) Because the context of this plenary session is inappropriate to nudity, right? Nudity would be hugely inappropriate. Only in your nightmares would you come to this kind of conference (laughs) naked, right? The context demands that you put some clothes on. So that context principle governs the behavior that we think is appropriate or inappropriate at any given time. Now, let's move away from a silly, trivial example like that to the world, the ultimate context of our lives, If you believe, as the Christian does, in the absolute God of creation, the triune God, who called this universe into existence, who created human beings in his image and his likeness, who fell from grace in the garden of God, who sinned against God, came under the curse and the wrath of God, but God promised a savior in Genesis 3 verse 15, beginning a long line of prophecy throughout a history that God is governing and directing, culminating the coming of Christ who redeems us from the curse as the second Adam, undoes the work of the first, conquers sin and death, which are causally related and there will be a judgment by Christ that's the Christian worldview if that is your ultimate context of course it will affect how you live and behave but if you believe that you arose in random chaos from the goo through the zoo to you that you are essentially (laughs) that you are essentially a product of randomness that this universe is utterly irrational then, of course, the ultimate context for your life is very different. Now, a huge number of people that I encounter in my vocation essentially believe that about reality or something akin to it. Some vague notion of God that has no, actual, no content. And if there is a God, he must be controlled by the mind of man or defined and only as acceptable as what man... If man can define the kind of God he has, it's fine. If he doesn't want the absolute God of Scripture... And so in such a context, we have to understand that the people we're speaking to will not necessarily understand us very well. I was sent to recently by a good friend of mine here in Canada, an illustration of this uh, from the uh, homosexual advocacy group revealing a vicious anti-Christian program. And I read this stunning uh, statement from the, uh, the gay marriage uh, lobby, comments by Bishop Fred Henry who was uh, speaking out against it. And it was made clear by this particular group that the goal of changing the definition of marriage is to acquire a powerful psychological weapon to change society's rejection of homosexuality. And they went on to admit that what the bishop had said was actually correct, even though they were vilifying him for it. Now, why is it that on a subject like abortion or euthanasia or gay marriage and all these hot potatoes, and believe me, they are thrown at me by the truckload at universities? Why is it that you think your friends and those in your sphere of influence can't understand your position, your stance on, say, the issue of abortion? Do you know, they think you are illogical and foolish. You're a draconian fool. 
And why is that? Well, if you believe that what is in the womb is nothing but a collection of cells possibly going through its fish stage, then you can, of course, evacuate what is in the womb or suck it out or cut it up and suck it out. It's just an animal. You're shutting down a biochemical machine. And so when Christians come along and try and impose a Christian ethic on top of a non-Christian worldview, it doesn't make any sense. You want to be understood on your view of sexual ethics or abortion or euthanasia or any number of moral issues facing uh, our society, justice or whatever, you have to address the worldview, the beliefs that underlie it. Because as far as the world is concerned, they are logical, they are consistent, we are not. But of course, if you believe in the God of creation... Human beings made in God's image, life at conception, and so on and so forth. Your view of this issue will be very different. It reduced me to tears of laughter when I read in a, a British newspaper while I was speaking in Darwin's place of birth recently in Shrewsbury in England, uh, an, uh, an article by uh, John Clark, who's the education editor. Universities are failing to equip their students with a basic sense of morality. Stephen Schwartz, the vice-chancellor of Brunel, said yesterday... Plagiarism, incivility, rudeness, and reneging on legitimate debts, all of these are depressingly common among university students, he said. How can we begin to expect them to analyse ethical issues such as stem cell research, nanotechnology, euthanasia, gay marriage, when we cannot get them to understand that they should be polite to others and they should meet their obligations? In the past hundred years, it had become impossible for secular universities to provide the the prescriptive moral education of earlier centuries, said Professor Schwartz the head of the government's working party on university admissions. The result was that few universities tried to teach ethics. Indeed, they seemed to bend over backwards to avoid making moral judgments. And he says, I believe it's time for universities once again to articulate a moral vision of what they are trying to achieve and live up to it. Well, you tell a university student that this universe is irrational, it's meaningless, there's no truth, you're an advanced animal, and then you complain and fret and moan that they're behaving in such a fashion. And you have Peter Singer, chair of bioethics at Princeton University, who says that essentially a, a pig is of equal value to a human baby. And if it's, six, if it's six months of age and the child's only a week old, well, parents should be able to execute or kill, dispose of their children in their first week. Well, because if A evolved from B, you can't say A is better than B, you can only say it's different. And so there's a total inability to make a moral value judgment. These are the issues that we are facing. This means, of course, that any evidence you present to your friends about the Christian faith is interpreted in the light of their worldview. Now, this is very, very important. Listen to me carefully now if you can. I know it's difficult when sometimes we start thinking abstractly, but this is very important. You may have heard about the man who went to the doctor who believed himself to be dead. He was convinced he was dead. He tried to convince his wife and children that he was dead. And finally he went to the doctor and said, I'm I'm dead. (laughs) The doctor thought, how can I save this man some very expensive psychiatry bills? So he said to him, do dead men bleed? The man thought for a moment. He said, well, there's no heart pumping. There's no circulation of the blood, so on and so forth. No, dead men don't bleed. So the doctor took a needle out of his drawer, pricked the man's finger. Of course, blood comes out. He says, what do you make of that? The man says, that is incredible. (laughs) Dead men do bleed after all. (laughs) Now that is the power of a presupposition or an assumption about life, that you will take the most plain evidence, and the Bible says that God is speaking everywhere, he's screaming his testimony into the human heart, but it will be twisted on the basis of the person's governing assumption. That's why Paul in Acts 26, when he's talking to King Agrippa about the resurrection and the king's uh, beginning to scoff, he says, why should it seem incredible to you, O king, that God can raise the dead? I was speaking in London fairly uh, a few years ago, actually. I was giving a talk on the resurrection, and I thought it was a rather good one. And I was giving a number of reasons why the resurrection was historical and must be accepted as such. And a lady came up to me at the end, she was about 30, well-educated, professional woman living in London, who by the grace of God did actually become a Christian later on. But she said this to me, she said, that was a fantastic talk. I said, thank you very much. She said, it was a watertight argument. I thought, this is good. (laughs) She says, I have a question. I thought, she's going to ask how to become a Christian. 
She said, so what? I said, I beg your pardon? She said, so Jesus may have been raised from the dead. So what? I did not know that day how to answer her. Because I hadn't understood what the problem was. And the problem was twofold. First of all, she said to me, look, this is an open universe. Anything can happen. My Uncle Bob might be raised from the dead. I don't know. Anything can happen in a chaotic open universe. You can't identify, now she didn't say this to me, this is my extrapolation, but she said you can't identify a single event in history as being ultimately meaningful for all the rest. There's no pattern in history. There's no rationality in history. There's no ultimate meaning in history. Perhaps some guy called Jesus was raised from the dead, but, you know, Uncle Frank might be. There might be more resurrections in the future. Who knows? Even showing that the historical reliability of the resurrection is not sufficient if we don't challenge the underlying assumptions. If you preach Jesus to a Hindu in India, just Jesus, he will quite happily add Jesus to his 330 million other gods, Jesus as another avatar, another incarnation of the gods. Unless you address the Hindu's underlying worldview, his overall pantheism says all is one, one is all, and all is God, you cannot make the gospel comprehensible to the Hindu. It's exactly why the Apostle Paul in Acts 17 begins in creation. He talks about the providence of God in history, how he's made from one man all men to live, and he's appointed their places where they should live that they might seek after him. He implicitly deals with the law of God, the character of God. Finally, he gets to the judgment and the resurrection. In our culture, we have to address the biblical worldview. The other thing that was going on in this girl's mind when she said, so what was this? Do you remember doing join-the-dot puzzles when you were a child? Can you do a join-the-dot puzzle with one dot? Some of you may be doing one now, I don't know. but uh, <clears throat> You need more than one dot to do a join-the-dot puzzle. You need several dots, because as you join the dots, the picture emerges. Now, you cannot give a biblically illiterate person in our culture one dot and expect them to make sense of it. Evangelism is a comprehensible and meaningful communication of the activity of God in history, not an incomprehensible one. Many of us think our evangelistic efforts have failed. We think we've evangelized. We haven't. We've not been understood. I'm going to have to conclude with this thought. Everybody's worldview is rooted in an ultimate criteria for what is true. Everybody's set of assumptions is built around an, an ultimate idea. Now, as a father, two small girls, my oldest is old enough to have very lengthy conversations with me and keep me um, at times baffled by her questions. And children, as you know, ask why a lot. Why? Yes, well, it's because of this. Well, why, Daddy? Well, because uh, that's the way these things happen. Well, why, Daddy? How, Daddy? Well, j because I said so. And in the end, that's what you have to say. Think about that for a moment. If you ask why to every question, this is the first thing you do if you do a, a college-level course in philosophy. Ask why to every question. Where do you end up? If I said to you, Jesus is the Son of God, you said why, how do I know? I say, well, the Bible, it's authentic, the, uh, the um, archaeology, so on and so forth. And they say, well, how do you know that's, that's accurate? And I say, well, because of, you know, we've got the extant manuscripts. So on. Well, how, do you know, how, how can you be certain that they're not being corrupted? Well, now how can I, if I keep going on like that, offering reason after reason after reason after reason, and I never land anywhere, I can't ever establish my first statement, Jesus is the Son of God. We all have to start somewhere. We have to get to a point where we say, because I said so. Now, who in this world is capable of saying, because I said so? Any of you self-attesting, self-explanatory, self-created? Now, the world out there says, well, Nietzsche said, or Oprah said, or Jerry Springer said. <laughs> get to the point where we get down to the brass tacks, as we say in England. Who is your, because I said so? Who is your authority, and why? And the challenge then of apologetics is to go on to show that only one authority makes our, any of our human experience intelligible to us. All the people that we are speaking to, in the end, are therefore religious beings, they're people of faith. You can take the sharpest philosopher, the sharpest scientist, and every single one of them gets down to a faith commitment. 
Nobody can prove their most basic assumptions about life and reality directly. If you could, it wouldn't be your most basic. You can't say, here's my most basic assumption, and here's why. Because that would be your most basic assumption. You have to start with a because I said so. We begin with the authority of Christ. And when you look at the ministry of Christ, how did Jesus begin? How did, on whose authority did Jesus come? When you read the New Testament, at what point does Jesus say, because Plato said, now I reference this back to Cicero, now if you look at my footnotes, you can see that I've referred to Socrates on this. Jesus never appeals to anybody beyond his father. When Moses uh, says to God, who shall I say is sending me, he says, I am that I am. When Jesus is being asked, you're but 50 years old, how can you know Abraham? Before Abraham existed, I am. I have come on my father's authority, John 5, you do not believe me. Someone else will come on their own authority and you will believe them. We begin then with the authority of Jesus as religious beings among other religious beings. Every single individual that you and I can possibly meet is a person of faith. The question we have to ask them is this, which faith makes sense of our lives and our world? And each person is asking four fundamental questions. Number one, what is my origin? Number two, what is the meaning of my life? These are all the worldview questions. Number three, how shall I live? Morality. And number four, what is my final destiny? As people in this world, in your sphere of influence, are asking those questions, each one asks them as a religious being. And the answer that we have is in Christ Jesus. And the answer, the response that we bring is rooted not in the independent, autonomous mind of human beings, but in the revelation of God. I wish I had an, another hour to show you how we can justify that uh, apologetically. Unfortunately, Charles is half off his seat already, <laughs> trying to get me off the stage. Uh, see him perched there. So... <clears throat> I'm going to leave you with that thought. Origin, meaning, morality, destiny. And you and I have to do some work in as we look at people's prevailing and governing assumptions so that as we work through those, then people can understand our proclamation of the gospel. Let's recognize that our culture has changed. And as we go back into our churches and into the workplace, let's model our efforts on the Apostle Paul in Acts 17 among people who are lost and without hope and without God in the world. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.